Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 224. We'll begin the book of Ezra with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about memories catching up to us in color. In episode 217, I talked about canon and how, according to tradition, we refer to the Tanakh as having 24 books. The men of the Great Assembly decided this in the year 313 BCE. Allegedly. Five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Eight books of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve Minor Prophets. And 11 books in the Ketuvim, Psalms, Job, and Proverbs, the Scrolls of the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And in that episode, I noted that according to that traditional count, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered one volume, even though by other counts it's considered two. However, these books are too different to be regarded seriously as the product of a single writer. Ezra takes the tone of serious history and is delivered in the third person. It covers the experiences of the returnees to the land of Israel in the 5th century BCE and includes the only other passages in the Tanakh written in Aramaic. The other, as we read previously, were in the book of Daniel. It was probably written after Nehemiah, which is presented as second in the pairing. I'll get into the content of Nehemiah when we get into it in episode 227. But what I will say now is that the later additions to the canon, of which Ezra is one, we find texts that are less uniform in their style and content. Ezra, like Nehemiah, has historical narratives, read into the record historical documents, and even some folk tales. And let's not forget the political agenda of the book. Both Ezra and Nehemiah were leaders in the Jewish community, with the former focused on restoring religious practice in the temple and with the Torah, and the latter seeking to secure the Jewish settlement both politically and militarily. Though complementary in function, both agreed ideologically that for the Jewish community to succeed, it had to dramatically separate itself from the Samaritans, who saw themselves as the Jews who remained behind while the rest went off into Babylonian exile. This separation, which also included a ban on intermarriage, was perceived as rejection, which led to resentment, denunciations to the authorities, and even violent attacks. This position, however, was not the only voice on the subject, as we discussed when we covered the Scroll of Ruth. Many scholars read Ruth's story as one of tolerance and universalism and a rejection of any kind of ethnic test for belonging to the Jewish community. So chapter 1 situates us in time and place, the dawn of a new era in Jewish history. Cyrus the Great of Persia is permitting the exiled Jews to return home. Quote, All the kingdoms of the earth has Adonai, God of Israel, given me, and he has ordered me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of Adonai, God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And those who choose to remain behind will be called upon to help fund the settlement efforts. At first, not many take up Cyrus's offer. Quote, And the patriarchal chiefs of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, all whose spirit God had roused, to go up to build the house of Adonai, that is, in Jerusalem. Laden with the gifts of the remaining Jews, as well as the vessels of the temple, Cyrus delivers from Nebuchadnezzar's treasury, 
Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, is set to lead the return to Zion. Chapter 2 consists of lists of those who will return from amongst the Judahites and Benjaminites, 42,360 in all, as well as those necessary to rebuild and reboot the temple in Jerusalem, namely the Kohanim, the priests and Levites, the choristers, the sons of the gatekeepers, and the temple laborers. Also included were those who, quote, could not tell their patriarchal house and their seed whether they were of Israel. Chapter 3 finds us back in Jerusalem in the month of Tishrei, with the settlers slash returnees gathering to witness the dedication of the altar of the God of Israel, upon which near offerings were offered up. Though there was some concern and, quote, fear of the peoples of the lands, the near offerings went on all day. Sukkot, the festival of huts, was observed for the first time in generations exactly as it was prescribed in the Torah. And now the construction of the temple itself would begin, and it would happen under the direction of the new arrivals from Babylon, Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, and Yeshua ben Yotzadak the Kohen. The text tells us that when the first foundation stones were set in place, quote, they set up the priests in their vestments with trumpets, and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise Adonai, as David, king of Israel, had prescribed. And they called out in praise and an acclamation to Adonai that he was good, that his kindness to Israel was forever. And all the people raised a great shout in praise to Adonai for the laying of the foundation of the house of Adonai. But this day was not all fun and games. Many of the elder generation, those that had seen Shlomo's temple with their own eyes, were weeping in sadness. So, quote, the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyous shouting and the sound of the people's weeping. For the people were raising a great shout and the sound was heard far away. I never thought I was old enough to have historical perspective until sometime after my 50th birthday when it suddenly just happened. And I don't know exactly when, but now I had reached a point in my life where I had accrued enough experience that I could begin to appreciate what the French Annales School of Historical Writing called the long durée, the long term. The approach which focused on long-term historical structures rather than what they called the evental history captured most often by journalists and chroniclers. Perhaps there was a build-up to that moment that came and passed without notice. Perhaps preparing a Canadian history curriculum heightened it. The curriculum and the work in developing it started out with World War I with grainy photos in black and white, which in my mind tracks as history with a capital H. Except the fact that there are photos of the events described, it, it puts it in a category apart from all the other historical events I have been steeped in as a student and as a teacher, that is Jewish history. Perhaps the story will be illustrative. So I went on this walking tour of Old Sydney in Australia. The guide brought us tourists to an intersection in the city's north end, and she made such a big deal while we were standing in front of St. Patrick's Church, which had been built in 1828. Here is a photo of the church from 1828, and she turns to the group and she asks, does anyone here come from a city with buildings older than 180 years? 
Well, yes, I had come from Jerusalem where folks find stuff all the time when they're doing basement renovations that are significantly older than 180 years. And there are buildings that I've been in that were like nine to 10 times older than that. So I was definitely conscious of events in time that stretched back very far. And I could situate them in relation to stuff that, although closer to me, were also in the past and before me. The last living veteran of World War I was Florence Green, a British citizen who served in the Allied Armed Forces. She died on February 4th, 2012 at the age of 110. So I guess there's significant overlap there in in that Venn diagram of experience. But when Peter Jackson comes along and carefully colorizes mostly never seen before footage from the Imperial War Museum, and adds sound effects and voice acting for his 2018 documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. Well, I'm sure it looked like last Tuesday to Florence, but for me, it was just jarring. It unmoored me from my sense of place and time. These mostly men, many of whom were half my age when I saw this documentary, were going on about their business in glorious color. And for a split second, it seemed like it could have been last Tuesday for me, too. A similar unmooring happened when I saw the 1995 documentary Anne Frank Remembered. I had read her diary and seen probably half a dozen stage shows and films about her as part of my 20th century Jewish upbringing. But this documentary had something that none of those other productions had. It had footage of Anne Frank alive and moving. For me, Anne Frank, despite all the theaters and movies, was a still black and white photograph. That author's photo on the cover of most editions of her diary, her looking at us directly with head tilted slightly to our right, with an inviting smile that also extended into her eyes. And yes, the footage was also in black and white. But it was not static as that author's headshot. For 20 seconds, Anne Frank was alive. The footage came from July 22, 1941, from Anne Frank's neighbor on her wedding day. About nine seconds into the clip, We can see a 13-year-old Anne leaning out of a second-floor window to get a better look at the bride and groom. In less than a year later, the Frank family will go into hiding above the family business. I've included a link to the clip at the Tanakhcast page over at Anchor. So, as the Canadian history curriculum unfolded and we moved through the decades, the stills transitioned from black and white to color, and soon there's footage of the events described first in black and white. And then they transition into color. At, at any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. But then something amazing happened. The footage captured events that I remembered experiencing myself. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. And though they were recorded for posterity by amateurs and professionals alike, they didn't seem dated when I experienced them then. They didn't have the patina of age that covers every video or snapshot from the 1970s well through the 1990s, or as the kids say today, the late 1900s. Yeesh. 
They were just events populating the eternal present in my spotless mind. And with that, a moment of recognition, of recalling where I was when that event entered into my awareness and potentially shifted my consciousness. And perhaps it didn't, or perhaps it changed everything. And then a moment to marvel at the image or the footage and think, well, it looks dated now, as if someone was playing with a vintage or retro or vignette Instagram filter. But That was me back then in that poorly shot video or or Polaroid or photo that actually had to be developed by a professional in an actual photo shop. So when I read of this moment in Ezra chapter 3, when the foundation stone was set in place for the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple, I projected myself back into that moment as I currently am. In that crowd of onlookers, perhaps with my teenage children in attendance, not old enough to have remembered the first temple, the Temple of Shlomo, but having lived my whole life in Babylonian exile, in the shadow of that temple's destruction, fortunate enough to see the day when a new temple would go up in its place. Would I have found myself swept up in the excitement in that moment and shouted with joy? Or would I have been more circumspect and perhaps joined in the singing with some reservation? What would my kids have remembered from that day? Would they have even registered the tears of their grandparents' generation who saw the glory of Shlomo's temple and found this new one lacking? Or would they have been preoccupied by their own excitement? It's clear that we would have filed away that day in our memories quite differently. For them, it probably would have been a festive moment from their late childhood, one that would, have, would be bathed later in nostalgia and a slew of Instagram filters. But for me... It would remain fresh and part of the unfolding present that would accompany me into my senescence. A moment frozen in time, piled up high amongst an increasing pile of all the others. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 225 when we continue in the book of Ezra with chapters 4 through 7.